Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Once again, I just want to welcome everyone, and it's such a joy to see, and all those who have, who have come as uh, Shanika's guests, his uncle and aunt and uh, relatives and friends, and I really want to welcome you, and I'm so glad that you have chosen to join us this morning. I know we have been doing a series uh, from the book of Nehemiah, and many of you might wonder, now why on earth are we reading from Matthew? You just had to fasten your seatbelts and wait as we go through this passage, and certainly you'll understand why we are reading that. Just to give you a very quick overview, and we are looking at the, we are in the second portion or second part of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah is actually, uh, the book is talking about the restoration of the people of Judah. That's what he's talking about. We are in chapter 11. Now, if I don't know how many of you had a chance to look at chapter 11 when you, when you first read this. It appeared like a page in a phone book. It is so boring because I found it nothing but an unending series of hard-to-pronounce names. That's what you have there. But as you read the passage again and again, God opened my eyes to one key spiritual truth. Now, God's truths are not always apparent. But after deep meditation and spending some word and time and reflecting on what the passage is saying, certainly you'll be able to find the treasure chest of wisdom in that. My point is, church, that word of God might look very plain. But if you look hard and deep, there's a reason and a purpose why God has permitted those scriptures. First, let me give you a background of this city, what we are looking at today, chapter 11. The city of Jerusalem was like a ghost town for nearly about 140 years. So God put this huge burden in the heart of Nehemiah, this great project, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to restore the city. So Nehemiah actually gave his blood and sweat and and tears to accomplish this task, and we read in the past that it was done in 52 days, a great accomplishment for a construction project. By chapter 11, where we are today is that the the temple of Jerusalem has been built, the spiritual and the civil law order had been restored to Jerusalem. In the midst of, of this long list of names, there is a key spiritual truth, which I believe is so timely in, in light of today's celebration of Shanika obeying in the waters of baptism. I think it is only divine plan that we should look at chapter 11 today, a day when Shanika has got to obey in the waters of baptism. So in this passage of Scripture, Nehemiah actually populates the holy city of Jerusalem, and we see how Nehemiah establishes a spiritual community in Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Today's reflection will be on the new residence 
in this new Jerusalem. The new residence. And particularly, we are going to look at three groups of people. So let us see what life lessons we can learn. So as Nehemiah repopulates the holy city of Jerusalem, there was one big problem that he encountered because he had no people there. He wanted to repopulate, but there aren't any people. Let's look at verse number one. It says, now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine was to stay in their own homes. You know what we take from that? There were only a handful of leaders who occupied the city. So Nehemiah knew that a city without people would not thrive. So historically, you all know that Jer Jerusalem was God's holy city. It's a world mission center for all nations. And we find that in the book of Jeremiah, it says, All nations will gather in Jerusalem to honor the name of the Lord. It's a world mission center where everybody goes there. It would be a great shame if the people from all nations and the ends of the earth, they, they come to Jerusalem and there's no one to teach them, no one to speak to them about the Lord. So where did the majority of the population reside in those days? Many lived in towns outside the city of Jerusalem. So it was not easy for families to uproot themselves and start a new life in a city. I know we don't like to change. We don't like moves. Look at verse number three. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah. They were living in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various home or towns. So each one, as the Bible says, they owned property and had well-established roots outside the city of Jerusalem. So many would have to leave their comfortable homes, their own properties, well-paying jobs and friends and relatives and neighbors behind to come into the city of Jerusalem. In addition, we find that living in Jerusalem meant that you were a target of many enemy attacks. So this chapter, chapter 11, actually details of the people groups Nehemiah was able to recruit to go and live in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem. So we see at least three categories, at least that's what I see. I mean, you might be able to spot more than three. I see at least there are three categories of residents in this passage, and I just want to focus on that only this morning. Those who are brought in by lot, by casting lots. And then we see there's a tribe of Judah, and there's a tribe of Benjamin. Let's look at verse number four here. While other people from both Judah and Jerusalem lived in Jerusalem. So, now, firstly, let us examine those who were brought in by casting lots. So, what Nehemiah did was he appealed to the people to move to Jerusalem. Maybe he invested in advertising campaigns to bring people into the city, but no one responded. So what did he do? Go back to verse number one. The, he, he has to cast lots to bring one out of every town. That's what the Bible says here. 
He instituted a voluntary draft. He decided to visit town by town, house by house, family by family. This was done by casting lots. Now, I want you to get this. Even if the family was chosen, that doesn't mean that they were willing to go. So Nehemiah probably spent time with each family and encouraged them to live in Jerusalem. If they refused, then he would go and select another family and spend time with them. You know, as pastors and leaders, you know what that means. Going from house to house and, and reaching out to people. Nehemiah's prayer here is that if, if I can get one-tenth of the population to settle in Jerusalem. So what do we see, church? The temple of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The spiritual and civil law and order had been restored in Jerusalem. The city must be populated. Nehemiah is going on on a recruiting spree for people to go and reside in the city of Jerusalem, but people are reluctant. They do not want to come out of their comfort zone. Their dwelling, their secular jobs, their circle of friends, their communities, and their social status, and the list can go on. So the lots have to be cast. People must be enticed to go into a city, hear me out, promised by God. God said, that's your city. Oh, no, no, I don't want to go. Somebody has to entice you to go to a city that God has promised does this seem familiar to your church? To all of us. It takes a lot for the Lord to move us out of our comfort zones to enter into the city He has prepared for us. And we see that. You might ask, what city are you talking about, Pastor? You know when the disciples were so puzzled and worried when the Lord Jesus was talking about His death, in John 14, we see that he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God also. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, Jesus says. If it is not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Church, let me pause and explain a very important hermeneutical term called type. Otherwise, you won't get this message. That is used especially in the study of scriptures. So what is a type? Look at the screen. A type is a real or exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by the omniscient God to be a prophetic picture of good things which he purposed to bring to fruition in Christ Jesus. That's what a type is. Joseph was a type of Christ. We have studied that before. A type is defined as a person or a thing in the Old Testament believed to foreshadow another in the New Testament. So the value of the study of the types proves beyond any question that the scriptures had only but one author, the Holy Spirit. He speaks in the Old Testament and is being fulfilled. You can see that coming to pass in the New Testament. That's exactly what I see in this narrative. As Nehemiah wants to populate Jerusalem, so God wants to populate his new city, the new Jerusalem. He wants to populate. Now, since the fall of man, God has been inviting sinners like you and me to come and live in the new Jerusalem. 
Here is how the new Jerusalem is described in the Bible church. If we can get a glimpse of it, we will never be reluctant to come into this new city. Let's look at this. In Revelation, it describes, the, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So God sent, and He still does, many prophets and Bible teachers to recruit people to the New Jerusalem. But many thought, and still do, I believe, that God was inviting us to a funeral home. That is why we are reluctant. I know we are not excited in going for funeral homes. We are not willing to come out of our comfort zone. This new city of Jerusalem would be boring for us. We were no different. Before we came into a personal relationship of the Lord, church, think of your reaction to an invitation to a Bible study, to a prayer meeting, to a youth meeting, to a men's meeting, to a women's meeting. We ridiculed the people who invited us. We gave every possibility. Oh, my back hurts, Pastor. You don't understand. I need to lie down. I had to cook food for my children. I need to, I have a party to go to. Even today, people say that. You know what, church? Don't do it for me. Don't do it for me. Do it for you because the invitation is for you. We always think it was an invitation to a death of fun. That's why we don't want to go. But when you look at Revelation 21, 22, the new Jerusalem is a joyful place like a wedding. I know all of us want to go to wedding. Not all of us are invited for every wedding, but I love to go to every wedding. Because joyful time, do you really get it, church, what I'm trying to say? What a beautiful description of God's city. We all love weddings, right? Every one of us. It's a great time of and a great expectation, great celebration. God does not call us to become miserable but to have joy, rest, peace, but joy eternal. It's not a temporary joy. It's an eternal joy. It is not for one day. So it begs the question, who can get into this new Jerusalem? So this is a matter of eternal importance. Why? Because you go there and you live there for eternity. There is no end to this. So Jesus' parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22 explains that. That's why I asked Brother Albert to read Matthew 22. You heard the story. I'm not going to repeat the story. I just want to pick up a few key points here. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. It tells the story of a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The king's servants are sent to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. They offer a host of excuses for not coming for a wedding. They mistreat the servants, so the king punishes them. That's what he heard. Then the king dispatches his servants. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the, the, to the wedding as many as you find. Everybody. Invite every Tom, Dick, and Harry for this wedding. Jesus is describing here the offer of the gospel was first given to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That's what you're seeing here in this passage. Because the Jewish nations decisively rejected the offer of God. It was made to them through the prophets of the Old Testament. You can see that when the Jews rejected it, the gospel was extended to the Gentiles. 
What was the result? You know what? Whether the Jews went or Gentiles went, it's a different story, but we can look at this parable. The wedding hall was filled with guests. God is going to achieve His purpose. It's going to be filled with guests. But something unexpected happens in this story, if you have really followed as he was reading. The king joins his guests and he discovers there was a man who had no wedding garments. He had come to the wedding, but he was not wearing proper attire for the wedding. And the man gave no reason why he has no garment. It is actually in an act of eschatological judgment the king orders his attendants to do this. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, to bind the man hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus finally ends this story by summarizing the parable's meaning like this. Look at the scripture. For many are called, but few are chosen. The called... What does, the, what does Jesus mean by for many are called, but few are chosen? The answer we must understand what Jesus means here by call and chosen. The word call runs through the parable as you read this. The Greek test. In the Greek test, the servants are said to call those who had been called to the feast. The Jewish invitees are, the called, are, are known as the called ones. When they rejected the invitation, the servants are then commanded to call the Gentiles, the others. So it is actually a summons or invitation of God through His servants. In the Old Testament, we see it was the prophets. In the New Testament, the ministers. And today in the modern church, it's all the pastors and preachers and every other person who is speaking the Word of God into your lives. The invitation is given to everybody. This particular call bid the hearers to repent and believe the good news. That's what this call is expected to do. It is possible to refuse as well as, as well because that's what you see the many Jews were doing in this parable. So Jesus teaches those who refuse the call are to blame for refusing it. Hear me out, church. It is possible also to respond to this call in a non-saving way. That's what you see in the man who came without the proper attire, the wedding garment. And we see that in the churches. You can respond in a non-saving way. There's a form of godliness, but God is not in you. Because you're fearful of hell, you really want to come and see if you can't just make it. You're not wearing the proper attire. This lack of garment proves he doesn't belong to the feast and he is just, he is justly banished or punished for this. So what is the wedding garment? It, is, it likely pictures the gift of salvation freely offered in the gospel. Only those who receive this gift will be seated at the wedding banquet of the Lamb. Now John Piper explains it this way. He said that these verses show that all people are called to partake in God's grace, Piper says. But not all who are called actually become saved or chosen. Clearly the called are not always saved. The chosen are saved. That's why many are called who may not be chosen. And Piper explains this. 
And so what is clear is that in Matthew's terminology, the call is simply the general appeal to the world to come to the banquet. So the question is this, who are the chosen ones? They are those who sincerely respond to the call and receive Christ in faith. Jesus calls them the chosen ones. In Greek translation, it's called the elect. And we see that throughout the New Testament. These are all whom the Father has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in the sight. Ephesians passage chapter 4. Only those chosen ones will constitute the company of the redeemed when Christ returns in glory. God's eternal choice ensures that they will respond sincerely to the call. These are the residents in the new Jerusalem in the kingdom of God. These are the ones who responded to the call. By how? By sincerely repenting and receiving Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. So what does this teach us, church? The main lessons Jesus has for us in this particular parable is surprising. It is, first of all, it is not an insignificant thing to refuse the summons of God through his messengers. But God will hold those who refuse that summons responsible on Judgment Day. Secondly, God wants to realize there is a more subtle way to refuse the summons. That's what I spoke about, the form of godliness, but God not being in you. One way, pay lip service to the external call and never truly embrace Jesus as offered in that call. Even this refusal subjects us to God's just judgment. Church, the bad news we have, no power in ourselves is able to change us. On our own, we cannot do that. Not a single thief will look for a policeman, isn't it? Nobody will look for a policeman. We are like thieves. We will not look for policemen. Unless we are convicted, and the conviction must come from the Lord. The good news is God is pleased to change rebellious hearts by the inv invincible power of the Holy Spirit. If you have responded to the external call in repentance and faith, it is only because God has first been at work in our lives. That's why you are able to respond. Because salvation is truly by grace alone, church. Only in Christ we find an everlasting, unshakable foundation. So the invitation is to everyone, every one of us. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now you may ask a very important question to me, otherwise you are not thinking straight. You might ask me, Pastor, I know that the Lord has chosen whom he would save even before the time of creation, that's what you say. So how do I know that I'm amongst those that, I, that are chosen? It's a valid question to ask. Of course. How do I know that I'm chosen? It's a hard question, but an answer is very simple, church. Here's the answer we find in, as, for, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. 
If the Holy Spirit, I'm talking to those who are seated here and those who are watching online. If the Holy Spirit is prompting you and convicting you, you ought to respond today. The Lord will prompt only whom he has called. Let today be the day as it is for Shanika to proclaim her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May, that day, may this be the day for you. As the Holy Spirit convicts you, respond to it. Respond to the call. There's a general call is given out, but the chosen ones will respond and be allowed to enter into the new Jerusalem. So what happens next? So now today we saw little Shanika committing her life to the Lord, being granted the admission to the new city of Jerusalem that God has built. What happens then? There is rejoicing. Back to Nehemiah. I told you it's a type. Let's look, at back, look back to Nehemiah. What, see what happens when people responded to the call of Nehemiah and chose to enter into the Jerusalem city. Verse number two. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. In other words, there was a celebration, a commendation to those who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Their willingness is voluntary, not done under compulsion. It is on their own accord they decided to go into the city of Jerusalem. When they responded to the call, there was celebration. Church, I want you to get this, and I'm sure every one of you, you should get goosebumps if, for, to, to hear what I'm going to tell you. Right now, right now, at this very moment, there is celebration in the heavens. Look at this passage of Scripture. Likewise, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. As Shanika came in and openly declared her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and said that how what a sinful life and how God has changed her and, and adopted her and granted her the sonship. And he obeyed in the waters of baptism. This morning as we celebrated this, there was rejoicing in the heavens. Today we witness a willing confession by Shanika and admission to the new city, Jerusalem. A dear child of God, by faith alone and by grace alone, in Christ alone, this is a wedding ceremony, church. Now you may say, Pastor, it is very appealing, this message. Yes, I want to respond to the call. Yes, I want to go to the new city, Jerusalem. Yes, I want to be with the Lord for eternity. Yes, I want to be in the wedding party, but... Now, we are very good at coming up with these buts, isn't it? But, you don't know my past. You don't know my family. You don't know my background. You don't know what mess I am in. Well, will I ever get a chance to come out of this mess? Will I ever be able to enter into this new city, Jerusalem, that the Lord has promised? Will the Lord ever consider me for admission to Jerusalem? I told you we are looking at a type, isn't it? The Old Testament event foreshadowing the New Testament in Christ. Let's go back to Nehemiah. We also see there are two other groups of people who entered into this Jerusalem. The tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. So what are the significance of these two tribes? When you do some reading on these two tribes... 
you soon see how unworthy they were at some point in the eyes of God. They were unworthy. Let's look at tribe of Judah first. Verse number four. From the descendants of Judah, and you have all these names, and ends up by saying a descendants of Perez. And it's very interesting as you, as you see this. This is a group of people, you are in the new city, Jerusalem. The descendants of Judah. Tribe of Judah, who are they? Let me give you the background very quickly. Judah, one of the Jacob's 12 sons, was leader of the Israelite tribe bearing his own name. The tribe of Judah, he's the leader. Now Judah arranged a marriage for his oldest son called Ur with a Canaanite woman named Tamar. Now Ur was not a good guy. He was a, he was a mischievous guy. He did wicked things in the sight of God and he died early before producing an offspring, leaving Tamar a childless widow. Now Tamar, what she did is Genesis 38, those of you who are interested in reading at home, Tamar devised a plan to entice Judah into having sex with her and thus produce an heir. She was very keen to have a child. So she covered her face and disguised herself as a prostitute to a father-in-law and the plan worked according to the Bible. Tamar became pregnant with twin boys as a result of her encounter with Judah. So when the time came to birth, Zeraz, the, 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 there's, there's one child, had hand emerged from the womb first. So the midwife tagged the child's wrist with a red thread to identify him as the firstborn. But then Zerah pulled his hand back and suddenly Perez burst forth from Tamar's womb, earning his name and the rights of the firstborn. Interesting stories, isn't it? These are historical events. History is what we are reading. The name of Perez in Hebrew means a breach. The one who burst forth, it refers to how he was born. Now, Perez was one of the sons of Judah through an illicit affair that is not pleasing to the Lord. Now, he fathered two sons and became the ancestral leader of the Perizzite clan. That's what they're saying. Even at the wedding of Boaz and Ruth, this, this blessing was pronounced in Ruth 4.12, we see this. Now may the Lord give you descendants by this young woman who will be like those of our ancestors Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah. See, something has happened from that illicit relationship to this, for the Lord to grant these blessings. And as you go through this church, both Tamar and Judah sinned in their immoral union, but God worked through their sinfulness to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ. Wow. Through their bloodline. The Messiah is called what? The Lion of the tribe of what? Judah. Having descended from Judah through Paris. Would you have expected this? Now we see this in Jeremiah, in Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 6. All the sons of Paris who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. They were all outstanding men. When the Israelites returned from captivity in Babylon, 
468 parasites were chosen to live in Jerusalem. Wow. So church, your ancestral dynasty does not cast you out of God's kingdom. You break the cyclical behavior. We talked about that last time, last Sunday, of your forefathers. We studied that. You'll be enrolled in the kingdom of God. What may be an unthinkable, forbidden, taboo for the world, when there is brokenness in our hearts, the Lord restores us, brings us into His kingdom. No matter what your past is, if you are willing today for the breakthrough, He is waiting anxiously and lovingly and gracefully ready to embrace you. Then we have the tribe of Benjamin. What did they do? We looked at the tribe of Judah. Benjamin's tribe too had its dark side. Their warlike nature came out not only in defense of their country, but also in depravity of their country. As you read through the book of Judges 19 to 21, it's a beautiful uh, historical uh, narrative that you can read about this tribe. Benjamin takes up an offense against the other 11 tribes of Israel and civil war ensues. This period had the reputation during this period in the book of Judges that everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. Whatever it felt, it's just do it. It's Nike. It was very popular in time of Judges, I think. Just do it. Feels good, do it. What led to the civil war was the horrific abuse and death of an unnamed Levite concubine by the men who were protected by the tribe of Benjamin. So the 11 tribes turned against the tribe of Benjamin, and they nearly annihilated them because of their refusal to give up the perpetrators who really killed this Levite concubine. And the Israel went to the Lord, and here's, here's what I want you to get. He, they asked the Lord, what should we do in Judges chapter 20 and and so on. God directed them to engage the tribe of Benjamin in a battle and defeat them. This was God telling the children of Israel, go and defeat them, the tribe of Benjamin, for what they have done. Because they protected the perpetrators who killed the concubine. Church, this reveals that God saw the great sins that had occurred in, 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 uh, within this group, people group. So he directed the tribe be killed. God directed his punishment to the tribe of Benjamin, but God redeemed this tribe as you go through the Bible. Benjamin has great truths to teach us. First, God, see, God doesn't see as men see, for God looks on the heart. It doesn't matter what you have done in the past. That's why I kept saying even before. God saw a warrior inside Benjamin. He blessed this, this tribe. Because from this tribe, we see two people, two souls came out of this tribe. One is the King Saul. Well, King Saul, you know, we can talk about his sin nature, his war against God, and so on and so forth. But Apostle Paul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul's nature was changed by God from a murderous Pharisee to the Apostle of Grace. Wow. Tribe of Benjamin a murderous Pharisee to an apostle of grace. 
Paul is the example of what God does for those who come to Christ in faith. So we see the flaws in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Yet in the new Jerusalem that we see in the book of Nehemiah chapter 11, they were sought out and given prominence by the Holy Spirit to be a part of the chosen community to reside there. Church, we too may feel like the tribe of Judah and tribe of Benjamin, worthless sinners today. Some of you might feel that way. But God wants to populate the new city of Jerusalem. He's calling for those who are willing. This requires only our response. The children of Israel were called to come out of their comfort zones. We cannot sit on our comfort zones and, and refusing to come. Those who decided to get out of their comfort zone were commended because they entered willingly. That's the word that we saw earlier. They were commended because they had faith to risk their lives, savings and homes and friends. We need to come out of our comfort zones. When we study the Bible, as, as we go through this, we learn God wants us to get out of our comfort zone and trust in Him alone. You know, church, the greatest comfort zone is basically our sinful nature. That's our comfort zone. We are not willing to come out of our sinful lifestyle. That's why in the Romans chapter 12, Paul writes here, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As young Christians, we are afraid to get out of our comfort zone. A comfort zones may be a party lifestyle that we are leading now. An easygoing lifestyle, an unhealthy relationship. What we think is the best lifestyle, as a result, we are trapped in it. And we are not able to come into the new Jerusalem. So getting out of our comfort zone means to believe that God has the best in store for us. He wants to give us the best jobs, the best soulmate, the best mission. But unless we decide to get out of the comfort zone, we'll never grow to bear our Lord's image. So let us decide, church, to get out of our comfort zone and to grow to bear the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what you witnessed today in this beautiful obedience on the waters of baptism by, by Shanika. And that is what we see in chapter 11. And this is what the Lord wants to do in your life and mine. So as I conclude this message, the Lord wants to populate the new Jerusalem. The city has been built. I have prepared a place for you. It's in the past. I have prepared it for you. I'm going to come back and take you to be with me. The walls are up and the gates are done and he's calling you to come. So if the Spirit is prompting you to respond today, do not harden your hearts. You're one of those who are chosen. On your own will, you will not be able to come out. But if the Spirit is really speaking to you, church, respond to that call. Do not look back at your past. Do not look back at where you are in your life, where you are deeply trenched in sin. That is how the tribe of Judah and tribe of Benjamin were. 
but Lord, restore them. If the Lord is prompting you, those who are seated here, those who are listening or watching online, I'm going to appeal to you, come, this is the time. The city of New Jerusalem is built. They're looking for new residents. God is recruiting them. Come, today is the day. Worship team, please come. And we are going to sing a beautiful song, His Mercy is More. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you are experiencing. His mercy is more. Let me close in prayer and I'm going to ask the, ask the worship team to lead us in this final song. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and thank you for this message that you have given to us. Even though it was a complicated chapter as we dived into this, we could see the type that you wanted us to extract and to learn and we thank you for the new city of Jerusalem. I pray in Jesus' name if you have convicted any one of us who are in the sanctuary or watching online, help us, God, not to be reluctant to come out of our comfort zone, but to come openly and make the declaration today because today is the day of salvation. So we pray that you'll work in our lives and cause the change to happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.